Welcome to Working the Word with Jonathan Vorse. Join us now for service already in progress at Lakewood Church of God. I have a lot that I need to share with you today in the foundational message. We're going to start a series today called Red Letters. And over the next several weeks, I just felt direction from the Lord while we were on our sabbatical that I needed to come back and, and focus more on the things that Jesus taught when he was here on the face of the earth. You know, the church today, just let me say it like this, the church today is largely Pauline. And what that means is it seems that we pay a lot of attention to the Pauline epistles or we, the epistles, the letters of the New Testament. And when we start looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're really looking more at the parables maybe or the, or the miracles that Jesus did and, and the sacrifice that Jesus made on Calvary. But have we ever really went back? Because Jesus, the Bible said that he would do miracles and then he would sit down and teach them things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The theme of Jesus' ministry was the kingdom of God has come and is coming. Kingdom is God's system and God's ways of doing things. So Jesus was teaching to establish the foundational principles of what later would become the organism called the church. And so what we're going to do over the next several weeks is we're going to be going through specifically the book of Luke and we're going to be talking about some of the things that Jesus taught. You say, well, how come we're going to use Luke? Because Luke, unlike Matthew, Mark, and John, is an eyewitness account of the things that Jesus said and did. And so we're going to be talking about that from Luke's perspective. Let's just bow our heads and pray and ask the Lord as we embark upon this journey to give us wisdom and help us. Grab the hand of the person beside you if you can. And let's pray in agreement. Father, we just come to you right now in Jesus' name and we thank you, Lord, for the Word of God that changes and transforms our lives. I thank you, Father, that we get to live in the country that we live in, that we have the freedoms that we have. Lord, we don't take them lightly. We don't take them for granted. We're grateful for them. But Lord, we also realize that we have a responsibility to the rest of the world to share the message of God's love and the healing power of Jesus. Touch me to be able to effectively communicate your word today. Touch the ears of the hearers to hear, both here and those who I know are watching online. I pray, God, that you would open our spirits and that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. We're using for our springboard scripture, Luke chapter 24, and verse number 45, when the Bible says this, Then he, speaking of Jesus, opened their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. That's my prayer. That God would open our understanding that we could understand the Scriptures. Now before we really delve into this, I want to... And, and by the way, guys, I shared, uh, you may not have found it, and I forgot to tell you, but there is a PowerPoint that will help you back there. So go ahead and download that PowerPoint.
because there's just a few things on there that I feel like that we, that we need to share. I, I want to say, first of all, that I was moved by last week's service. Lowell did a good job ministering. He's definitely an evangelist, dyed-in-the-wool evangelist. And uh, I, I like him because he's a Jesus cheerleader. Every time he comes in, you can, you can expect to hear, give me a J, give me an E, give me an E. And I like that. He's consistent. But we decided, those of you, if you're new, we decided that we would honor the uh, nationalities that we have represented here in our church. And so that's what all these flags are. There are 25 plus the Christian flag, so there are 26 flags up here on stage. Let's give the Lord praise. There's a couple of flags here that we don't really have nationalities, but we have ministry presence in those nations. And so... Um, we have those flags here also. So we're grateful and we're thankful. And last, last Sunday really moved me. I, I, I love God. I love His Word. I love the global heart of Jesus, which is what we're going to be talking about today, actually, is the global heart of Jesus. So I want to begin today by talking to you about where does America stand in relation to the rest of the world. You said, well, we're going to talk about red letters. Well, you'll understand why we're going down this track here in just a few moments. Where does America stand in relation to the rest of the world? As of this month, 2018, according to my studies this past week, as of this month, the global population is 7.6 billion. That's billion with a B. Look at somebody and say, that's a lot of people. Now, America has a population of 325.7 million, that's with an M, as of the census of 2017, which lets us know that America is approximately 4.6% of the total world population. That's amazing, isn't it? When you think about it, you think, wow, there are 95% more people in the world than there are in America. The world is a really big place. A really big place. Now, overall, the global economy of the world is worth an estimated $79.98 trillion, that's with a T, dollars. But get this, the U.S. boasts 20.4 trillion of that 79.98 trillion dollars. In second place is China with a 14 trillion dollar economy, and in third place is Japan with a 5.1 trillion dollar economy. So, the United States is a federal republic. We're talking about the government now, a federal republic with three branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial, which lend themselves to representative and constitutional democracies. We're not socialist. We're not cultural Marxist, which is worse than a socialist. We're not communist. We're America. Formed by the people and for the people. And we are the land of the free because of the brave. So this makes us unique. And this makes us much more prosperous 
than the rest of the world. So, let's recap for a little bit. The United States of America has approximately 325.7 million people, which is 4.6% of the world's population, but we have about 25% of the entire world's economy. 4.6% of the population of the world controls over 25% of the world's economy and you live in that nation. If you went to Canada, your life would be different. If you went to China, your life would be different. If you went to Japan, your life would be different. If you went to Africa, your life would definitely be different. If you went to South America, your life would be different. If you went to Europe, your life would be different. If you went to Russia, your life would be different. Would it be better? Would it be worse? That's between you and God. But I'm telling you right now, there is absolutely no excuse for anyone in the United States of America to complain about the life that we live. No reason. No reason. So in light of these truths, as God's church in America, we need to ask ourselves a few questions. Number one, what is the church's responsibility to the world? You know, it frustrates me sometimes when I hear people say, well, you know, we talk about going around the world, talking about as a church. Now, I'm not talking about, a, a, I'm not talking about governmental economies. I'm talking about the church. Well, I don't know why in the world we've got to focus all of our attention uh, uh, around, with people around the world when there's, always, there's people down here, downtown, that could use some food. Let me tell you something about the people downtown that could use some food. And I'm not being heartless, but they can get food stamps in America. They can get welfare in America. They can get help in America. And if they can't get help like that, we have, in this community, we have Matthew 25 ministries, we have Metropolitan ministries, we have Volunteer Way, we, we used to run uh, uh, Hope, we, used to, we had the, the Hope Center down here that we were doing, Project Hope, that, that what we were doing. We have the Rope Center up here. There are places where people can get help in America. In other countries, if people wanted to start ministries like that, they don't have the wherewithal in the country, in the nation, anywhere to be able to fund a ministry like that. So there is help in America if people aren't too proud to receive it. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't reach to them. And for several years, you know, we've been here for eight and a half years. And we are very active in our community. And we're, continue, we're going to continue to love locally. And we're going to continue to support these kinds of ministries. But if all we ever do, and if the mindset of people in this house or any other church house in our community is that, you know, we shouldn't be thinking about the rest of the world. We ought to just take care. Then you are not, you don't have a biblical mindset. We have a responsibility, 4.6% of the world's population that controls 25% or more of the world's economy has some sort of responsibility to the rest of the world. And if you don't believe that, you're like an ostrich with your head in the sand. You're not seeing clearly. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the American church's responsibility to the world? What should our attitude be towards the rest of the world? 
And here's a big one, number three. I put this down. Have we represented Jesus well in the areas of proclaiming Christ, discipleship, and humanitarian efforts around the world? And just let me say this just as a side note. I wasn't planning on saying it. It's not in my notes. I didn't think about it until just right now. I think it's probably the Holy Spirit. If you're not involved with Samaritan's Purse, you need to get involved with Samaritan's Purse. What is Samaritan's Purse? That's Billy Graham's son's ministry. So you need to get involved. They help people with disaster relief and whatnot. Do we really understand, number four, and I think this is the problem with the church in America. Do we really understand that the gospel of Jesus is a global gospel? That Jesus died for the whole world. That the Bible is God's word to the whole world. This is not a Middle Eastern book. That was just for people in the Middle East. This is God's love to the entire world. John chapter 3 and verse number 16 says, For God so loved the world. That means America. That means Europe. That means South America. That means the Middle East. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So as we embark upon this series called Red Letters, I felt it was important to kind of point some of these things out to you here today because I want you to understand that what we're talking about is not just a message to America but it is a message to the other 95% of the world as well. And we in America, that control 25 plus percent of the world's economy, have a responsibility to make sure that the message of Jesus Christ is proclaimed throughout this world. That this world understands that God loves them so much that He sent His Son to die for them. We as a church have that responsibility. We have the responsibility of discipleship, which is helping people become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And yes, we as God's church have a responsibility to the world to pay attention to humanitarian efforts. There are real hungry people in the world right now. There are really sick people in the world right now. And we need to ask God, what's our part? Now obviously we can't have the Messiah complex here at Lakewood Family Church. We can't solve all of the world's problems just out of this church. But we need to be faithful with our part. And we need to do the best that we can with what God gives us. So when we look at this series, Red Letters, and we begin to, to go through this series, I want you to understand that this is a, these are messages for the entire world. Now, let's take a look at the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus and he was a tax collector. He was a former publican. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew focuses on Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecies that prove him to be the Messiah. He shares the lineage of Jesus back to Abraham. The difference between Matthew and Luke's, because Matthew and Luke are the only ones that share lineages, the difference between Matthew's and Luke's is Matthew shares the lineage of Jesus back to Abraham. Luke shares the lineage of Jesus back to Adam. Well, why would they do that? Probably because Matthew was a Jew and Luke was a Gentile. Didn't know that, did you? 
Matthew was a Jew and Luke was a Gentile. So naturally, Matthew would be paying more attention to Jewish things because that's what he had been taught, while Luke would have been paying more attention probably to the entire scope of the world because he was a Gentile. So Matthew's going to go back to Abraham, but Luke's going to go back to Adam. Matthew uses the term that it might be, quote, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, unquote, rather frequently. He refers to the kingdom 55 different times in the book of Matthew and the kingdom of heaven 35 times. And of the 15 parables recorded by Matthew, all but three of them begin with this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. So Matthew was focused more on proving that the Old Testament Messiah is really Jesus. That's what he was focused on. And so he quotes more from the Old Testament than any other New Testament writer, signifying to us that that book was placed first for it to be a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, of all four Gospels, Matthew was not the one that was written first. Mark was the one that was written first. But Matthew was placed as the first one that we have in the canon of biblical scripture. And I think it's because it serves as a bridge book between Malachi, the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament, and Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, and that 400 period that we call the Dark Ages. And so it serves as a bridge. And so Matthew ends with his version of what Jesus said and did with what has become known as the Great Commission. And that is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20 that says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now I want you to look at verse number 19. This is the Great Commission. This is Matthew, the first book of the, of the New Testament. Go ye therefore and teach, what? All nations. So he said right there at the end of the book, after sharing the life and the times of Jesus, he said, now you're supposed to take what you have learned here. Jesus was saying this, and I want you to go and teach all nations. He didn't say just teach Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but he said go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Teach all nations. And then the Bible says here in verse number 20, he ends it with the word world. Amen. Now let's go to Mark. Mark is the son of Mary and the cousin of Paul's missionary partner that journeyed with him, and his name was Barnabas. How many remember about Paul and Barnabas, some of you that are Bible scholars, scholars, Paul and Barnabas. Now Mark begins by focusing on the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, and he was, now listen, he was called the Baptist because he baptized people in water. And that's where the Baptists trace their roots from. They say, well, we're Baptists. Well, that just means you baptize people in water. We baptize people in water too. There's a baptistry right here, and we dunk them. So if we wanted to say, if we wanted to put Baptist out there on the sign, we would be just as accurate as the Baptist down the street because we baptize people in water. Made an entire denomination out of just dunking people in water. We're Baptist. So are we. Praise God. We're spirit-filled Baptist. We're Bapticostal. Hallelujah. 
I just say that because I think it's funny how that people can split hairs and it's just ridiculous what the church does to themselves, isn't it? Amen. So anyways, he baptized people in water in the wilderness. And so Mark focuses more on the works of Jesus. He focuses more on Jesus' miracles than he does his teachings. And I think this is amazing because he, he, he records 20 miracles to only four parables. Mark talked more about what Jesus did. And an interesting note is that all but four of the 16 chapters, all but four of the 16 chapters of the book of Mark begin with the word and. And so what it's saying is it's, he, he was trying to get across that, the, and, and what, what the writers were trying to get across when they divided the canon into, into chapters and verses, they were just trying to get across that this is a continuation. The life of Jesus is a flow. It's a continuation. It's a flow of teaching. It's a flow of power. And so we see how the, the life and the service of Jesus work together. They flow together. And then in Mark 16, verses 14 through 20, we won't read it all, but that, that, but that ends... The book of Mark ends with Mark's version of the Great Commission. And in that version of the Great Commission, now remember, he focuses more on signs and he focuses more on miracles than he does on the parables or the teachings. And so in his Great Commission, he says, they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. And he tells us there in that Great Commission that we're supposed to cast out devils and we're supposed to heal the sick and things like that. And so that's his great commission. So now let's talk about Luke. Now Luke is the one that we're going to be spending a lot of time on. And this is kind of the foundational message. But Luke is the one we're going to be spending a lot of time on. Luke was a Gentile and he was a Gentile physician. He gives us an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, and I think this is fascinating. Peggy uh, was uh, talking to me in the office this past week, and I pointed something out to her, and she said, I had never seen that before. And what it was was this. I said, I really like to read about the miracles in the book of Luke because it's a physician's account of the miracle. Did you ever think about that? So Luke was a Gentile physician, so when Luke shares the miracles of Jesus, understand he is from an, it, this is an eyewitness account of a miracle and that miracle is being verified by a practicing physician. He gives the longest account of the life and the ministry of Jesus and he's the only one who covers the childhood of Jesus including when Jesus went to the temple at the age of 12. Now, Luke focuses more on the humanity of Jesus, where John focuses more on the deity of Jesus. So Luke focuses more on the humanity, and he's the only one to share about the Good Samaritan, to share about the publican, to share about the prodigal son, and to share about Zacchaeus. He has the only account of the conversation that Jesus had with the thief on the cross. He's the only one that talks about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And he's the only account that we have of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. 
And he ends with our springboard scripture with this. He says, Lord, uh, that, that the Lord would open their understanding that they could understand the scriptures. And his version of the Great Commission was found two verses later in, Math, in, in Luke chapter 24, verse 47, when he says, And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now let's go down to, to John. John was a Galilee. He was the youngest disciple, but his account was the oldest writer. So in other words, John did not write his account of Jesus, this gospel, until he was a really old man. He was the youngest disciple, and he lived his life, and then he wrote the gospel. So not only did he see the life of Jesus, not only did he walk with Jesus, not only did he witness those things, but he witnessed the after effects of the ascension. He witnessed the persecution of the church. He witnessed the coming of the Holy Spirit. He witnessed the, the growth of the church. He witnessed the setting up of the church. He was there many times when Paul the apostle was leading them and setting up apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers for the work of the saints, for the edification of the body of Christ till we all grow together in one. And so John was there for all of that. And when he got through at the end of his life and decided to write this gospel, isn't it amazing that among scholars today, his gospel is known as the love gospel. When he encapsulated everything, it took him three chapters. Of course, there wasn't chapters and verses back then, but, but so that's not very far in. So not very far in, he wrote, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. So in the very beginning of his account of the life of Jesus. He got the point across that God is a God of love. He is not a God of condemnation. And he focused on the deity of Jesus. He began by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we see him focusing on the deity of Jesus. He spoke of the Judean ministry of Jesus even though he was from Galilee. Only in the Gospel of John do we find the story of Christ's first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee where he turned the water into wine. Only in the book of John do we find his conversation with Nicodemus about being born again. Only in the book of John do we hear him give the account of saying, roll away the stone, Lazarus come forth. And only in the book of John do we see where Jesus commended the care of his mother to his brother John. Who was John? That was John. And only in the book of John do we hear him say or read where he said, Jesus cried, it is finished. 
That's in the book of John. Over or, or close to 100 times, somewhere around 100 times in the entire book of John, the word believe is used. John was trying to get across to us that God loves you. He doesn't condemn you. He cares about you. Believe, 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 believe. Talking about Nicodemus. Give your life to Jesus. Believe. You got to believe. Talking about Lazarus. Talking, rolling the stone away. Well, Lord, by this time he stinks. Jesus says, roll the stone away. And he calls him forth. If you believe, you'll see the power of God. That's what he's saying. And he's trying to get the point across. You have to believe, 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 believe. And so he was sharing the deity of Jesus. And so when we look at this, we see in John chapter 20 and verse number 31, it said, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believe and you might have life through his name. That is the theme verse of his gospel. Let's read it again. It says, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So we have a pretty good picture, don't we, of America in relation to the world. We have a pretty good picture of the fact that we have a responsibility to the world to share the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've kind of traced through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John just a little bit and shared a few things with you about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, do you understand why I want to kind of go back to Luke? And Luke is what I want to, what, what I want to focus on because his is the most extensive and it's an eyewitness account. And so we're going to begin with the red letters that we find in Luke chapter 2 and verse number 49. Luke chapter 2 and verse number 49 is the very first words that we find in the book of Luke that Jesus ever uttered. And he uttered them when his mother came back to the temple when he was 12 years old because they had went a day's journey or two away and they were looking for Jesus and they couldn't find him. And so Joseph and Mary turned around and went back because of the census and they found Jesus standing in the middle of the doctors of the temple and confounding the doctors of the temple. And his mother began to chide him just a little bit and Jesus looked at her probably with a twinkle in his eye and a little flash in the corner of his mouth and he looked at her and he says, How come you sought for me? Wished you not that I would be about my father's business? So here Jesus was at, at, at 12 years old confounding the doctors of the temple, which is the time for the bar mitzvah for a Jewish child. That was the time when they would literally become known as a man between 12 and 13 years old. And so Jesus is standing, confounding the doctors in the temple. He's sharing with them things out of Mos the laws of Moses. And they are just confounded by this little 12-year-old. And then his mother shows up and says, Where have you been? We've been looking for you. Forever. You know how far down the road we got? We had to turn around and come back and get you. Right there, you see the humanity and the deity of Jesus in one place. So, with that, I began to think about this and I thought, you know, Jesus enjoyed his young life, but he stayed focused on purpose. He stayed focused 
on his purpose. And he sought to help other people understand his purpose. I don't think that Jesus disrespected his mother. I've heard some preachers preach that Jesus was being disrespected. Look, Jesus was human like you, and Jesus was human like your child, and Jesus... No, 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 no. Jesus probably said, ouch, when he stubbed his toe. He probably enjoyed his mother's lentil soup. He probably helped his father uh, in the workshop, and some people say, well, he was a carpenter. Well, carpentry back then basically meant a stonemason, and if you really study it out, Jesus probably helped build some of the Roman arenas that later some of the Christians fought lions and bears in. Jesus was from a very wealthy family. Some people say, well, I don't know. No, Jesus was a list. Stonemasons made a lot of money. And when the, and, and when, <laughs> and when, I don't need to get into this, but and when the wise men came and brought uh, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Jesus, they didn't travel in threes. There's no place in the Bible that said it was threes. They traveled in companies of at least 50. And when they brought gifts to prophets and priests and kings, then what they would do, it was their practice to ride on one camel and have another camel for their personal belongings and then have another camel to laden down with gifts as much as that camel could hold. So you had a minimum of 50 wise men coming with 50 camels laden down. A camel can hold about 900 pounds with 900 pounds on each camel of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In today's economy, that was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 million dollars. So don't tell me that Jesus was poor. Jesus was, I didn't need to get over on that, but Jesus wasn't poor. I don't believe that Jesus was poor. In fact, I've got other places in the scripture that I think I can prove to you where, and that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love poor people. It didn't mean he didn't hang out with poor people. It didn't mean he didn't minister to poor people. And it doesn't mean if you're poor, you're not spiritual. Doesn't mean that at all. But don't tell me that Jesus was poor because Jesus was not poor. Now, Jesus does the same for us today. Jesus seeks to help us understand His purpose. Jesus was trying to help them understand His purpose. He tried to help His mother understand His purpose. He was confounding the doctors in the temple trying to help them. Wished you not that I would be about my father's business? He was trying to help them understand His purpose. The purpose of Jesus hasn't changed today. Jesus still tries to help His church understand His purpose. He wants us to live with His purpose. May we as God's church be known as the people of God. May we let people know who we are. How do we do that? Well, we show forth the praises of God because we understand His purpose we are, we are familiar. May we as God's church be familiar with the love and the tenderness of the person of Jesus Christ. I don't see Jesus preaching mean, do you? I don't think He preaches mean and calls it anointed. Whoever said that the louder you scream, the more powerful you are? Hello? I was talking with Donna about this during our sabbatical and I told her, I said, Donna, I just, sometimes I feel pressure from people to perform. And I said, I'm not going to perform for anybody. I'm going to be who I am. God didn't make me a screaming preacher. He made me a teacher of the Word of God. I was watching T.L. Osborne this past week. How many know who T.L. Osborne is? He went on to be with the Lord. He actually died February the 14th, 2013. And... Um, I was watching him 
And he was talking about early on in his life and ministry. He said, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. And he said, and I know, he grew up in the Pentecostal church of God is what happened. And he said, we were taught that if someone was demon-possessed, that you'd get them free, but you had to scream the devil out of them. <laughs> and he said, we were taught that in order to preach, you weren't preaching unless you had worked up a sweat and bless God, you were really giving it to the people. And he said, we were taught that was anointed. And he said, Daisy and I had served the Lord and had loved the Lord for many years. But he said, our life was changed one day when we received an invitation to go see a man by the name of William Branham preach. And he said, now forget about the things that happened in the, in the latter end of his life. He said, early on, William Branham was a powerful man of God. And I know he would be because he was mentored by F.F. Bosworth, who was also the mentor of Oral Roberts and A.A. A. Allen. And F.F. Bosworth ran around with, people, with the likes of William Seymour, who was the pastor of the church at Azusa Street, the great Azusa Street revival. And also, uh, he hung around with Jack Coe, and he hung around with people like Smith Wigglesworth. So that's who F.F. Bosworth was. And so, and so he said, we went to this meeting, and he said, we were up in the third balcony. And he said, I was sitting there. And he said, the worship had ended. And he said, here come this little man out there to minister. And he said, I thought, we're getting ready to get the word now. Because see, there wasn't television and stuff back then. He said, we're going to get it now. And so he said, the man got up and he opened his mouth. And he said, he was so soft-spoken and he was so tender. He said, then there was this little lady, this little woman, little girl. And he said, they brought the little girl to him. And he said, the little girl was deaf and she was dumb. She couldn't talk and she couldn't speak. And he said, he turned and looked at the people and he reached and grabbed the little girl by the hand like that. And he turned and looked at the people and he said, would you guys agree with me, please stand and agree with me. I'm believing that Jesus is going to heal this little girl today. And he said, we all stood, and he said, I got up, and I'm thinking, all right, here it comes now. I mean, he wasn't, but man, he's going to pray and rebuke sickness. And so, man, he's going to let her have, he's going to open his mouth, and here we go. And he said, I'm standing there kind of sideways. He said, I'm looking like this kind of sideways. And he said, I turned, and he said, I looked, and I saw him reach and grab the little girl's hand. And he said, he prayed, and he said, Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that Jesus is the healer, and we bind this sickness in the name of Jesus, and we command it to go. We loose her tongue that she can speak. We command her ears to be open that she can hear. Thank you, Lord, that she's received her healing in Jesus' name. And he turned, and he looked at the congregation, and he said, it's done. He said, in my world, I thought he was just warming up. But he said, they tested that little girl and she received her miracle right there. And he said, she didn't, he didn't scream. He didn't holler. He didn't do theatrics. He didn't show off. He just simply in a tender way, just prayed over that little girl and her ears were opened and her tongue was loosed and she had a miracle. There are times in the scripture where the Bible says that Jesus cried out. So I think there are times when he did lift his voice. But I think that the majority of the life and the ministry of Jesus was one of power, not theatrics. And so, and so may we, as God's church and God's people, not get caught up in showmanship. The church around the world, the other 95% of the world, the church around the world can tell a fake. They can tell if you're just showing off. They can tell if you're just working up a shout. 
They can tell if you're trying to work up the people psychologically. Listen, I don't want to have to work you up. I'm not going to try to work you up. But if God starts charging your batteries, I'm going to let him charge you as much as he wants to charge you. Praise God. And when the Lord gives me instruction like he did earlier today to stick your finger in your ear, then I'm going to do it. And some people say, well, that just looks crazy. I don't care what it looks like. Just follow in the direction of the Lord. You know, it's God's responsibility to take care of my reputation, not mine. So when the Lord speaks, then we obey. Okay? So may, the, may we as God's church be known around the world as a people who show forth the praises of God. May, be, may we be known as a people who are familiar with the love and the tenderness of the person of Jesus Christ. May we walk with righteous character. Here's a big one. May we live a holy life because purity precedes power. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And may we be known as a people in whom God dwells. When Jesus said, Wist you not that I would be about my Father's business? What He was doing, He opened His mouth for the very first time in the book of Luke and He said, Wist you not that I would be about my Father's business? And with the opening of His mouth, He began to establish the foundation of what He would later call the church when He looked at Peter and said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When Jesus uttered those words, it's the very first time in scripture that you find the word church. The church was formed from the mouth of Jesus. You're the church. You're the church. You're his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Then we go to Luke chapter 4 and verse number 4. Jesus answered him saying, It is written, this is Jesus being tempted by the enemy. Forty days of fasting. If you look in Luke chapter 4, the word of God says that Jesus was led of the Spirit into the wilderness. And then the Bible said in Luke 4, 14 that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. So he was led of the Spirit into a place where he would be tempted of the enemy, and then he returned in the power of the Spirit. And we'll talk next week about his proclamation in the temple where Jesus, where the Bible said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and we'll see the commission of Jesus. But in Luke chapter 4 and verse number 4, Jesus is still being, uh, still being uh, worked on by the enemy, and he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Listen to this. But by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. I want to tell you, Jesus is still saying today and getting across to us today that there is life in the flesh, but there is also life in the word. Yes, this is not just words on a paper. These are words that get into our spirit. They get into our life. They change the course of our life. Then we go to Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. We find some more red letters. Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Let me tell you something. You still have power over Satan. If the devil's in your face, that's, that's where he is. You need to just look at him and say, Get behind me. 
I was watching a minister yesterday, and he was talking about how that God will raise you up if the devil's in your face, put him behind you, get him behind you. And then he said, sometimes the devil uses other people. And what you need to do is realize that people's lives are seasonal. There are some people who God gives you for the long haul. There are some people who are seasonal. And he said, those are boosters. Thank God for the boosters. He said, have you ever seen a rocket that made it into outer space without the boosters? And he said, the boosters get with the rocket and, the, and they give it the power to go. And he said, but there comes a time as it ascends into higher altitudes that the boosters just fall off and they fall back down to the earth. He said, some of you are grieving over the boosters that God's put into your life. He said, let the boosters fall off. They weren't designed to go to the altitude God has taken you. Amen. Amen. I thought, uh-huh. You know, the higher you go, the more boosters. We must really be going to be go really, really high because we've had a lot of boosters fall off over the last 40 years. But we have power over Satan. This same minister was saying this, that if Satan gets in your face, tell him to get behind you. We have power over Satan. We can put Satan behind us. Why do we need to put Satan behind us? So he doesn't cloud your vision or distort your sight. Get him behind you. Put him behind you. And how do you do that? You say, get thee behind me, Satan. You submit yourself to God. You resist the devil and he will flee from you. And it's time for the church to leave the devil behind. Don't battle him every day. Song we used to sing in church. The sun's coming up in the morning. Once again, I face Satan this morning and I battle him all the day long. I can't stand that church, that song. Why would you battle the devil all day long? Kick his derriere at the beginning of the, of the day and just go live in victory the rest of the day. Praise the Lord. Amen. So it's time for the church to leave the devil behind. Don't battle him all day. He's already a defeated foe. It's time for us to advance forward and just leave the devil back there where he belongs. And then this scripture says this, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. We need to worship the Lord our God. When we accept Jesus into our hearts, He becomes our God. Amen. Worship the Lord your God. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, He's my God. He's my God. Now look at somebody else and say, He's our God. First Samuel chapter 2 and verse 2 says that he's our rock. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. Psalms 18 and verse 2 says he's our defender. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. In Proverbs 2 and verse 6, the Bible says that he's our source of wisdom. For the Lord giveth wisdom out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Standing. In Exodus 15, 26, the Word of God says He's our healer. He said, I am the Lord that healeth thee. In Psalms 103, verses 2 and 3, the Bible says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all, my, all His benefits, who forgives all my iniquities and who heals all my diseases. Hallelujah. 
Isaiah 53 and verse number 5 says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 the word of God says that by his stripes you were healed. In Psalms 91 and verse number 2, we're talking about our God. In Psalms 91 and verse number 2, the Bible said He's our refuge and He's our fortress and He's our trust. I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress and my God in Him will I trust. In Psalms 46 and verse number 1, He's our help. God is our refuge and strength. He's a very present help in the time of trouble. And then the Word of God says in Matthew 6 and verse number 9 that He's our Father. He's our Father. More than all of these other things, He's our Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. So Jesus communicated to Satan there in Luke chapter 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then he communicated to him there, and he said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Here's what Jesus was saying in modern English. Devil, I'm done with you. You know what? We need to do the same thing that Jesus did. Some of you need to say, Devil, I'm done with you. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. I'm not going to let you make me feel this way anymore. I'm not going to let you beat me down anymore. I'm not going to let you rob me anymore. I'm not going to let you hinder me anymore. Devil, I'm done with you. We're done with you. Get thee behind me, Satan. I will worship the Lord and Him only will I serve. I'm not going to serve your mindsets. I'm not going to serve your ways. I'm not going to serve your kingdom philosophy. I'm not going to serve the way you try to make me feel. I worship the Lord and Him only will I serve because He's my Father who is in heaven. I'm His child and He's my God. In verse number 12, here's what Jesus said. It is said, Thou shalt not... Now listen to me. Jesus is talking to the devil. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He told the devil... You don't tempt God because He's not just my Father, but He's your God. Whether you want to admit it or not, thou shalt, devil, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Some of you need to get that right mindset. You need to let the devil know, devil, you're trying to mess with me, but you need to understand that my heavenly Father rules and reigns over you. He rules and reigns over you. And He's my God. He's my God. He belongs to me. Let's stand. Come on. Now, some of you need to draw a line in the sand. Some of you watching online from around the world. And I know because you say, 
watching from India, watching from Poland, watching from different places. Some of you need to draw a line in the sand and you need to let the devil know your days of wreaking havoc in my life are over. And you need to turn to the devil and say, that's enough. You have no power over me. You have no authority to even be breathing the same air I'm breathing. Get behind me. Don't ever get in front of me again. Don't ever whisper in my ear again. Don't ever try to hinder the work of God again. Don't do it, devil. Get behind me. We've had enough. We've had enough. And some of you need to have that conversation. You need to say, Lord, I receive you. I receive you into my life as my Savior and as my Lord. But not just as my Savior and my Lord, but I receive you as the as the mighty conqueror. You're my God, the mighty conqueror in my life. So, how come the devil has his way with so many people? Because we don't know who we are and we let the devil try to tell us who we are. We need to pay attention to what the Word of God says we are. And we need to embrace our victory and say that scripture's for me where the Bible says that we are more than conquerors through Him that loves us. We overcome Him by the blood of the Lamb and by His Word, by the Word of our testimony. See, here's the thing. Whether the devil likes it or not, God still has His hand on you. And whether the devil likes it or not, God still has His hand on this ministry. The devil's tried to dismantle over and over and over and over, but he keeps failing. You know why? Because it's not my ministry. It's God's. And it's not yours. It's God's. We are partners together with God in the work of Jesus. The devil can't tear something apart that belongs to God. When the devil tears ministries apart, it's because the wrong people are trying to take ownership of it. God has his hand upon you. God has His hand upon the ministry that God has called you to do. Jeremiah chapter 33 verse number 3 teaches us. It says, Call unto me and I'll answer thee and show you great and mighty things which you know not. There's so much more we can learn about God. There's so much more we can learn about faith. There's so much more we can learn about prosperity. There's so much more we can learn about the anointing. About healing especially. There's so much more that we can learn about that. But we have to become students of the Word of God disciples of God's Word. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, at the beginning and the foundational message of this series. Now next week we're going to be in the Word a lot more about with the red letters and we're going to be talking about the mandate of Jesus on His life and ministry and how that is our mandate. But if you're here today you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, then all of it begins with you giving your life to Jesus. The Bible says this. It says, there's none righteous, no, not one. And that's true until you become born again. And then the Bible says that God takes unrighteous people and makes them the righteousness of God in Christ. So God wants to save you. He wants to come into your heart. He wants to come into your life. He wants to change you from your toes to the tips of your hair. God wants to save you. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, the way you receive Him is you believe. 
Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we can be saved. There's not a list of 40 things that you have to do. You have to believe and confess. That's what the word says. So if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, you want to accept Jesus into your heart, I want to pray a prayer with you. And if you'll pray this prayer and mean it from your heart or something similar to it, pray it in your way. Jesus will come into your heart and your life. And your life will be changed. Just pray with me. Say, Dear Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I ask you to come into my heart. I want you to make me a Christian. I believe that you're the Son of God and that you died on Calvary for me. I ask you now to come into my life and I confess you as my Lord and as my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, I want you to let us know around here. And those of you that are watching online, if you prayed that prayer with us, let us know so we can get some discipleship material to you. We want to help you grow in the Lord. I want you to grab the hand of the person beside you. We're going to be close. Thank you for joining us on Working the Word. For more information, go to our website at www.suncoast4, and that's the number four, Jesus.tv. You may also write us at 12637 Pony Lane, Hudson, Florida, 34669. Or you may call us at 727 856 1770. Our office hours are Monday through Wednesday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Thursdays, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. And remember, the Word will work if you work the Word.